If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to John chapter 10. We'll be in John 10. We're continuing uh, our series in the I Am uh, sayings of, of Jesus. And so we're going to be here this morning. A few announcements, not announcements, but a few things as you find your place in John 10. Uh, if you were with us on our Good Friday service, we looked at the bottom section of John 10, uh, which is where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And, and that is in verses 11 through 18. Today, we're going to look at the top metaphor, which is in verses 7 through 10. And so just to give you a frame around how John 10 is structured, there's a saying, right? Uh, and you see that, that the figure of speech. Look at verse 6, where uh, we're told that uh, this figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand. So verses 1 through 6 is the metaphor. It's the parable. It's the figure of speech. And then verses 7 through 10 Jesus uh, likens himself to one part of that metaphor, the door. And then in verses uh, 11 through 18, he likens himself to the other part of the metaphor, him being the good shepherd. And then verses 19 through 21, I think, are it's a, it's a beautiful contextual uh, verses that remind us to read this in a context. All right. So this is God's word. Truly, truly, I say to you. He who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, they will flee from him. For they, they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we turn our hearts to your word and we thank you that it is alive, that it is inerrant, that it is infallible, that all that is needed for a life of godliness, all that is needed to, to, to be known about you, you have uh, placed it here. And yet, Lord, the Bible has limits. John tells us that if he were to write every single thing Jesus did and taught, and every miracle that he performed, that there is not enough uh, trees on the planet to contain all of who you are. But what we have before us, Lord, is sufficient. And so we pray that you, Holy Spirit, will breathe life in our midst. We pray that you will take what is easily hidden from us and make it plain and make it clear. In the same way that those who heard Jesus speak did not know what he was talking about, that is us apart from your spirit open our eyes soften our hearts that we would see the wonderful things from your law make us hearers and doers of your word we pray this in jesus name amen so i have a confession um i'm a kid at heart and here's what i mean like I'm the adult that when we go to Walmart or Target, I get fussed at because 
I'm the one that will go find a football and throw the football with my son or my daughter in the store. I'm the one that will hit someone across the head accidentally because we've been playing. I'm the one who goes into the store where the basketball goals are, and if there's a loose basketball, I think they put those covers on there because of guys like me. Like, I, I'm that parent, right? And when we usually go to the store, I usually want to go uh, down one aisle. I want to go down the toy aisle. Uh, I just, I love Legos, and I think I pass that along to my kids. And I also love these transformers. So this looks like an 18-wheeler and an oil rig, maybe. But if you know, if it's a transformer, that there is more than this, that this little guy, if I were to open him up, that he turns into Optimus Prime. And, and if I were to open this up and, and, and take this apart, like this turns into a, a battle station. And I'm not going to do it. So, so, some of the kids at the, at the first service were waiting the whole service for me to actually transform this, but I'm not going to do it. Uh, but I, I like Transformers, and I've, lo I've loved them ever since I was a kid. And I think it was because it's this idea that you get two things in one that he's, a, he's a, a, an 18-wheeler, but he's also a robot. And some of you may have the Transformer jingle in your background, Transformers, Transformers, more than meets the eye, Transformers, Transformers, robots in disguise, that they've come to do battle against the Autobots and Decepticons. You get it, right? But I like them because there's more than meets the eye. That this one toy, he, he, he is two things at the same time. I mention that because that's a helpful way to think about John 10. That this is John 10. And what's usually most associated with John 10 is I am the good shepherd. And I know my sheep. And my sheep know me. And they hear my voice. And I lay down my life for my sheep. But what's also in John 10 is I am the door. You get that? I am the door. He says that twice. And so which one is it? Is Jesus the good shepherd or is he the door? He's actually saying, I'm both. And as believers, we have to be used to that type of math in the Bible. Because the Bible is going to say that Jesus is the great prophet, the one that's greater than Moses. But he's also the great king, greater than David. Which one is he? He's both. The Bible's going to say he is fully God and truly man. Hebrews is going to tell us that he's the great high priest who, who enters into the tabernacle now built by human hands. So he's better than Melchizedek. He's better than Aaron, right? And at the same time, he offers a better sacrifice than calves and, and, and goats. So how is it? How are you the high priest and at the same time, you are the actual sacrifice? Boom, mind kind of blown, right? But that's what God is doing. God is actually making Jesus all that you need. You need a prophet? He's the prophet. You need a king? He's the king. 
You need a priest, he's the priest. You need atonement, he is the atoning sacrifice. He doesn't just offer it, but it's him that what the Bible is sort of painting this picture of of Jesus is that he is all of that and a bag of chips, right? As the old folks used to say. He's all of that. You name it, that's him. And that's what we see in our passage. He's the good shepherd. That's Good Friday when we touched on this a few weeks ago. This morning, he's also adding to the door. And he uses one figure of speech, verses 1 through 6, and he actually says, both of these things are true about me. I'm the shepherd, and I'm the door. Now, this is written in a context, and so we can't just get to the door. We'll get to that last. But, but the buildup to the door, I think, shapes the passage. And so Jesus is going to talk to us this morning about three things. First, danger from strangers. That's the first point, danger from strangers. The second point is a desirable sheepfold. And the third point is a door for the sheep. So that's kind of, it's, it's, I'm using D's and S's, danger from strangers, desirable sheepfold, door for sheep. I just want you to mem- remember it, right? First thing, look at our passage and how it begins. It begins with truly, truly, I say to you. Now, whenever you see truly, truly, if you have a King James Bible, that's a verily, verily, right? It's the double amen, amen and amen, I say to you. When Jesus uses that language, he he wants you to like lean in and pay attention more to what he's about to say. Now, notice he says, truly, truly, I say to you. Then, Then look at the next phrase. That is the subject. It's the he, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in another way. That man is a thief and a robber. And so the subject of the first verse is actually a thief and a robber. A thief is someone who will come into your house when you're not there. A robber is someone who will stick you up in broad daylight. And what Jesus is saying is, be careful of both types of enemies, those who will work in secrecy and darkness, and then those who will have no regard. He is putting them on alert for real danger. Now, the question that we have to ask is, is the same one that they asked at verse six, that when when Jesus finishes talking about uh, uh, robbers and thieves and a sheepfold and sheep and shepherd, they're scratching their heads like, Jesus, what, what does this have to do with anything? Well, I think the key to interpreting it is down there in verse 21, that when Jesus finishes this discourse, there was again division among the Jews because of these words. Look at verse 20. Many of them said he has a demon. Look at verse 21. Others says, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? That's the phrase you ought to underline. Open the eyes of the blind. Why? Because we don't read of anyone blind in John 10. So where is the blindness that has been healed that is the reference point that sparks what we see in John 10? It's in John 9. And so you can't understand John 10 unless you go back and understand what happens in John 9. There was a man who was born blind. And the man born blind was healed by Jesus. And the religious leaders went to the man's parents 
And look at verse 22. They put pressure on him. Tell us, tell us who healed him. And look at this parenthetical note that John puts in there. Look at verse 22. His parents said these things. What things? They told him, you ask him. Don't ask us. He's old enough to tell you himself. And so John says, well, why didn't the parents just flat out and say Jesus healed him? It's because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, they were to be put out of the synagogue. That's the backdrop. And so what happened when the Jewish leaders went and found the blind man because the parents were afraid to testify because they were going to be cast out when they went and found the blind man. The blind man says, look, I was blind and even I can see that Jesus healed me. And what did they do to to him? Once he testified, look at what it says. Verse 34. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. You see that? That's the religious leaders who just cast a blind man who was healed out. They excommunicated him. They cut him off from Israel because he testified to Jesus. And so when Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by me, he's a thief and he's a robber. Who is he talking about? He's talking about the thieves and the robbers in John 9 who just entered access to the sheep of God and they did not come through Messiah. And you know they did not come through Messiah because their actions don't look like Messiah's and their words don't look like Messiah's and their temperament doesn't look like Messiah's. And here's the sad part. This isn't Rome. This isn't soldiers. This isn't Pilate. This isn't outsiders hurting the sheep. You know who's doing the hurting of the sheep here? It's those who know their Bibles and serve on committees and pay their tithes and misuse their power to prey on the sheep. And this is not the first time we see it. Turn to Ezekiel 34. You don't have to turn there, but there it says, the shepherds and leaders of Israel ruled them with force and harshness and the sheep were scattered. I'm gonna apply this This is one of the most haunting passages on leadership in a church. Church leaders can prey on the sheep. Haven't we heard of settlements within the Catholic church of priests who molest children? That is wrong. Haven't we heard of pastors who run off with parishioners? That is wrong. Haven't we heard of cult leaders who brainwash the sheep and lead them astray? And that is wrong. But we make the mistake if we think that this is only a problem out there. And it only happens out there. 
where people reach settlement and it makes the news. You see, I think a responsible way of reading this passage is not to say, look how evil their leaders were. The right way to read this passage, outside of the grace of God, there goes I. You see, I think this is a warning. It's a warning to anyone who's in leadership. Me. This is a warning to me. This is a warning to elders and deacons and growth group leaders and women's ministry leaders and men's ministry leaders and children's ministry volunteers. Anyone in this church who has any ounce of authority over the flock of God, this passage ought to force us all to wrestle with how do we use our power in the church. Diane Langberg has written a book that I commend to you, and it's called Redeeming Power, Understanding Authority and Abuse in the Church. And here's what she writes. The dynamics of power are ever present in Christian ministry. Power can be a source of blessing, but when it is abused, untold damage to the body and the name of Christ, often in the name of Christ, is done. And there are many types of power, says Langberg. There's verbal power. Some people in the body of Christ are so verbally gifted that they can use words, often in artful ways, to manage situations and to control people. There are people with powerful personalities in the church and they don't have stature and size. But when they show up in a room, their presence fills it. It's the power of personality where you can control a room or a company or a country or a church. There are people with power based on specialized knowledge and they can wield it. They can speak authoritatively and expecting that what they say to be accepted by all because they are in the know. There's economic power. Some people in the church have money and they have resources. And if the church does not conform to their picture of the church, then they will not give. And you know what that is? That's using your money as a means of power in the church to get your way. There's spiritual power. That this power is dangerous unless it is exercised in obedience to God. This form of power can be used to control and manipulate and intimidate others to meet one's own personal needs by oftentimes using words cloaked in nice sounding spiritual language. There's cultural power where God actually gives us freedom and culture to worship a certain way, to dress a certain way that is modest. And some, because they don't like your preference, will come at you and treat their cultural preferences as Bible. And what's happening is they're letting their culture become more than what it should be in the life of the church. This passage 
And these thieves and these robbers who were harming these sheep, who were sending these sheep away and scattered and hurt. There's a wake of hurt people behind this person. Jesus is calling out. It should force every one of us in any aspect of leadership, formal or informal, ordained or non-ordained, volunteer or pay to wrestle with these questions. What power has been entrusted to me by Jesus? Have I abused my power? Number three, am I easily driven to see this church as a place for me to rule and lead in such a way that hurts people and quenches expressions of cultures and preferences where they have freedom? Am I using my power to make this church about me and my kingdom and what I want. And here's the thing, sin blinds us. Did you catch that when Jesus says this, they actually says, what are you talking about? Did you catch that? That means unless Jesus himself by the spirit actually shines light on our sin, guess what? We won't see it. It's a grace of God to actually use the son of God and the word of God to shine his light on our hearts so that every one of us will have the posture of humility that instead of saying, look at them, we all stand up and say, Lord, what are you saying to me about me? That's the biblical posture. And we have that in Jesus, because if we can recognize the abuse and misuse and mistreatment of the sheep, we actually have a good shepherd who's laid down his life for our sins. We can actually walk in repentance and wholeness. This passage is not just about them. It's about us and the real danger that can be in our midst. That's the first point danger from strangers. Second thing is a desirable sheepfold. Now, the I am statement that we're honing in is on verse seven and verse nine. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door. But here's my question. Think about a door. What is Jesus the door to? That's the question, right? That's the million dollar question. A door is not just out there in the abstract, in the parking lot by itself. You would think that that was crazy. A door serves as the entrance to something. You got into your car through a door. You walk into your house through a door. You walk into a bomb shelter through a door in an elevator, into a building, into an office, into a dugout. Doors beg the question, to what am I walking into? Now, when Jesus says he is the door, we ought to be asking, to what? What are you the door to? And I think the answer is in verse one. Notice what Jesus says. Again, we looked at the he, the who the he is in the subject. But then he says, but he, uh, but, but I tell you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door. So now all of a sudden something else comes up. Not just a thief and a robber in danger. Now sheepfold. I, might I submit another reading of this passage to you that I think takes the one reference to sheepfold that you see in verse one 
and it extrapolates it out throughout the entire text. Let me read it for you. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold, that's in the Bible, by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door of the sheepfold is a shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper of the sheepfold opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out of the sheepfold. When he has brought them all out of the sheepfold, he goes before them, and his sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Verse 7, so Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheepfold of the sheep. I am the door into the sheepfold. If anyone enters the sheepfold by me, he will be saved and will go in and out of the sheepfold and will find pasture outside of the sheepfold. You catch it? All I'm doing is taking what you see in verse one and putting it there because Jesus is the door to something, the sheepfold. Now here's the question. What is it? It's a walled enclosure with either glass or shards of uh, metal or in some cases, you might even put uh, briars and thorns. You might wrap them around the top. And inside of it, the sheep would go. And it's a walled enclosure so that the sheep are safe, right? Now, there's evidence in the wild that there were makeshift sheepfolds. If you were taking at your animals out to graze and you had to go far, far away, because think about it, you got multiple shepherds feeding their sheep. And if they're nomadic, they're traveling out farther and farther and farther and farther. And sometimes there's a day's journey to go find pasture. And when you're a day's journey out, what some shepherds would do is find a cave. And that cave would have one entrance and they will let their sheep graze. And rather than go home for the night, they will lead their sheep inside the makeshift sheepfold. They would stand at guard of the cave so that nothing could get in and nothing could come out. But the normal way that this worked is in a poor village, you might have multiple shepherds with multiple herds of sheep, but they would put their money together and have one sheepfold. And the sheepfold will be large enough for multiple shepherds to lead their sheep into the sheepfold at night. And then when the shepherds went to retire for the night, they would pay someone to work the third shift. Hence the gatekeeper. And the gatekeeper would stay awake or nap at the entrance so that no sheep could leave and no one could get in unless it was the shepherd. And so the question that we have to ask is this, what would a sheepfold have provided sheep with? Sheep are prey animal, which means they, they're defenseless. I have a rabbit that I'm trying to kill in my backyard right now because he is eating up our, our garden. I'm calling it our garden because I put the dirt in it. My wife kind of tends to it, but I'm calling it our garden. And man, he is, he is clever. We get out there and we shine a spotlight on him and I square him up like I'm going to take him out with a pellet gun. And he just hears the faintest sound and he's off. We try to sneak up on him and I swear he can like smell us and he's just off. Right. But that's what a prey animal is like. They're skittish. They're at the bottom of the food chain. And here's what we know about sheep, that chronic stress affects their reproductive function 
It impairs wool and uh, body growth. It reduces immune function and greater stress is associated with greater parasite burdens of sheep. But do you know what happens to sheep when they have a good shepherd? And they have a sheepfold and they enter into that sheepfold in the evening and they're not worried about being hunted. You know what studies show happens? They reproduce better. Their wool is fluffier and denser. Their immune systems are strong. They breed and they nurse and they sleep. In short, they can thrive even in their weakness if there is refuge and safety prepared for them. They can't build it. A good shepherd must give it to them. Don't ignore the sheepfold imagery that Jesus is using. He's actually saying, as sheep need sheepfolds, so do humans. We need places of refuge. Now, I want to go from three points, just in general nature, and I want to bring this in into the gospel. Think about children. We already know the value of a home that is safe, where there is secure attachment, where there is nurture, where there is protection, where there are boundaries and limits. Does that make sense? And our kids, no matter what they endure in the world, if home can be safe, they will thrive. And I know like teenagers are here and they don't want to hear that. You got to have some rules. You need rules. You need boundaries. We as parents are tasked with determining what comes in and what goes out. And we're doing this in love. We are creating a safe place for them to flourish, right? But it also happens in the world around us. Isabel Wilkerson has written a book, The Warmth of Other Sons. And it took her 15 years to write this book. And she interviewed and traveled uh, four different families who migrated from the South between the years of 1950 and 1970. And that's been called the Great Migration in American history. It's when six million African Americans left the South. And we went to Chicago and Cleveland and Detroit. Now the question becomes, why? Why did six million people leave Jim Crow South? You know why? It sucked. You were worried about lynching. You were worried about jobs. You were worried for your safety. And this is what she writes. They were all stuck in a caste system as hard as the unyielding as the red Georgia clay. And they had a decision to make. Do we stay or leave? Their migration was a response to an economic and social structure not of their making. They did what humans have done centuries when life became untenable. What the pilgrims did under the tyranny of the British rule. What the Irish did when there was nothing to eat. What the European Jews did during the spread of Nazism. What binds these stories together was their 
their back against the wall, reluctant yet hopeful search for something better, any place better than where they were. They did what humans have done throughout history, looking for freedom, they left. The great migration is about a lot of stuff, but one thing it is about, it is about living in a society where you're the refuse of the world, where you aren't safe, where you can't raise your family. And you know what? Humans will only tolerate that for so long. And we chunk in the deuces. What about John McCain, who was a prisoner of war in Vietnam for five and a half years? And that was hell. Hell on earth. And you know what he writes about? A prison guard who loosened his chains in the morning and in the evening before they changed the shifts, he tightened them again. You know why? So that the guards would not know that he was being treated with kindness. It's about the guard on Christmas Day who stood next to John McCain and drew a cross in the ground with his shoe. And as he is looking down, even though it's hell around him, he has a moment of refuge and safety right there. You see what's happening? As humans, we were wired to have a place where we're safe and known and cared for and attended to. And what Jesus is actually saying to us You need rest and salvation and peace and security and freedom. You need a place where your fears subside. You need a place where you have freedom, freedom to go in and out and find pasture. You need protection where nothing can ultimately harm you. You need a place where you can sleep knowing someone is standing on guard and alert to fight for you. Such a place exists but you can't manufacture it. Jesus says, but I will. I'll give that to you. I will save you. And look at verse nine, you will be saved. What does Jesus mean by you will be saved in his sheepfold? Does he mean I'm gonna die for your sins and just save your sins? Yes, but in the context, this salvation is bigger than that. What he's actually telling the blind man who is probably with him right now and his disciples who had got a whiff of bad leadership, he said, I'm going to save you from them. They won't rule over you like this anymore. I got you. I'm going to fight for you. And you know what Jesus did when he died on the cross? What happened to the temple? Y'all tell me what happened to the temple? The curtain was torn in two. And what happened to the Pharisees? They they kept trying to come at him. But you know what Jesus sent? He sent them Romans. 
to tear down that temple and don't you ever rebuild it again. I'm putting them out of commission. They will never, ever, ever rule over my sheep. I got shepherds coming after me who's standing on my shoulders, who are the apostles and the prophets, and they're going to lead people like me. And so when Jesus talks about salvation, is he talking about his death on the cross for our sins? Yes. But he's talking about more than that. I'm going to save you from them. And his real beef with them is because they were drawing people away from the Messiah. Guess what was happening beneath that? If he is, if they are drawing people away from Jesus, then they still got beef with God. And so what Jesus is really doing is clearing them out and taking care of his sheep so that his sheep can be cleared and taken care of by God Almighty. This salvation is much bigger than we think. What if it were possible, Redeemer, to have safety from poor leaders? Safety that transforms even death into life. Safety in the type of peace where you can sleep even though the world around you is falling apart. What if it's possible to have a type of peace that we don't even fear condemnation when we fall short because we have a good shepherd who's laid down his life? What does it feel like to have a safety that even when we're disciplined, we receive it in love, knowing that the Father loves us and he is not casting us off? What does it mean to have a place where there is no sickness, no sorrow, no cancer, no death, no suffering anymore, no deceit? Here's the thing. It is not a dream. It is your reality if you name the name of Jesus, if you walk out of here right now and die in a car accident and you know the name of Jesus, you are safe and you are loved because he has built a sheepfold and he has brought you into it. And now it's up for you to enjoy him and to enjoy his good gifts to you. It's here. And it's multifaceted and it's now. And here's the thing. I think John in Revelation 21, he listen to this language. I think he actually takes a sheepfold language and he puts it on steroids. Here's what he says. I see New Jerusalem coming down and it's radiant and it had a great high wall. You get that high wall, just like a sheepfold. And guess what he says? No one can sneak in. Nothing unclean will go into it. Nothing detestable will get into it. Nothing no longer will be a curse. God will be our light and we will reign forever. Do you see that? It's this image on steroids to describe your future. And here's the good news. It's far and away and in the future, like the black folk who migrated. And it's also right here, right now, like John McCain. It's both and. And here's the question. I'm going to close with this. This is a quick point. It's here. And the question is, how do you get it? There's danger and there's a beautiful sheepfold. And the million dollar question is, I want that. How do I get it? The door. So for Valentine's Day, we went to Atlanta and we went to go to a Hawks game. And I was excited. I bought tickets a month early on StubHub and got them. And it's like on Valentine's Day and we drive into Atlanta. We check into the hotel and we get to the gate and I try to check in with our tickets. And, eh, eh, 
And I'm like, no, nah, bro, I paid for these tickets. And so we sat there for 40 minutes. Now, this is what made it bad. It made it bad because we saw folks just kind of frolicking in with their tickets. They like going all in. And I'm like, I got my tickets. I can't get in. Every time somebody dumped, we heard the crowd. We smelled all the bad food that is bad for you. And we were like stuck outside. Now I'm getting angry. I went from like, okay, what's going on? I was on the phone with StubHub for 30 minutes. Whoever sold us our tickets, they got us. They, re- they took our money, revoked our tickets, and sold them to somebody else, or they themselves decided to come to the game because when the lady looked up our tickets, she said, sir, somebody checked in an hour ago. And so they got my money, and I'm stuck outside. And so I put Capital One on them. And so Capital One says, we got it, Mr. McGowan. And it took some time. We went and bought two new tickets, got into the game, and Capital One got my money back. But that feeling of I want to be in, I want to get in, I want to get in, but I can't get in. Some of you, when you read this and you hear about this sheepfold, that do you feel that? Do you feel like, man, I want that. I need that. And you might be tempted to think, but I don't know how to get in. How do I get in? It would be torture if Jesus could paint this picture of this beautiful sheepfold and there is no entrance. But he doesn't. He says, I'm the door. There's one entrance. It's not like a Jackson State football game where the military people go here and the students go there and the faculty go there and general admission go there. It ain't a bunch of doors. Charles Spurgeon says this, that I love Spurgeon. I'm going to quote him here in a minute. He says, you may knock at a thousand doors. You may cry and pray and groan and agonize and sweat, even drops of blood. But there is only one door to have, and that door is faith in Christ. If you will not enter by that door, God himself will not open another. Jesus doesn't say, I'm a door. I'm the door. And there are no other doors. Circle around this sheepfold all you want. Try to climb over. You're going to get shot down. There is one way in. And in that sense, it's exclusive. But did you notice what Jesus says in verse 9? It's also inclusive. He says, if anyone enters by me. You see that? (laughs) Anyone. Jew. Gentile. Libertarian, Republican, Democrat, Southerner, Yankee, old, young, male, female, American, Palestinian, African, European. It does not matter if anyone will enter by me, they will be saved. That is inclusivity at its best. So what is he saying? What does it mean to enter into the sheepfold by him? It's simple. As simple as it was when you walked in the door of this church. You walked through a door. Charles Spurgeon says the metaphor is not only simple, 
but it's wonderfully commonplace. The dealers of profundities will not like this expression, but Jesus' object is not to win the applause of the wise and the poetical. It is to win the souls of the poor and the needy, to bring them into eternal life. So he uses what I may call a child's figure, a commonplace figure. I am the door. He has selected this emblem, I should think, partly that it may more often come before your notice. You will go out and into a place. You cannot do this without seeing a door. You will not get into your house without seeing a door. Doors meet your gaze everywhere. And so what Jesus is saying is this, I will meet you everywhere. How do we get it? We get it by walking the way of Jesus. It's that simple, childlike, beautiful. Walk to him and walk through him by faith and you are safe. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, thank you for the simplicity of your word. Thank you for promising to protect us from danger. Thank you for your beautiful sheepfold, which is here in this metaphor uh, in Palestinian countrysides, but uh, as John sees it unpacked, it's a city and a kingdom, and our hearts were made for it. Father, thank you that there is one entrance, and it's Christ. May we hear his voice, and may we trust him, and may we follow him by faith. Holy Spirit, will you give it, and would you strengthen it, that our lives may be lived differently? I pray for those, Lord, who don't know you. Might today be a day where you woo them into the sheepfold by your spirit and your word. We bless you. Amen.